You're listening to Where We Are, which is brought to you by the That Sounds Fun Network. This week, we'll begin a two-part series ahead of the midterm elections. Just a few months ago, there were prognostications that Democrats were heading for a bloodbath in the midterm elections, but things things have changed. Democrats are beginning to feel like they may buck the historical trends. And so in this two-part series, uh, we will lay out the case for both parties. This week, we'll describe some of the factors that are leading even us to think that Democrats might have the chance to uh, to to surprise folks this November. Next week, we'll make the case for Republicans. We're excited to dive in with you. This is where we are. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? It's the end of the weekend. I still wanna turn up. Yeah, I still This is where we are. We are the Wears. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And uh, Melissa, we're recording from Atlanta. Hotlanta. Uh, Hotlanta. Uh, Jermaine Dupri walks in. I'm just, uh, um, uh, and uh, looking forward to this episode again. It's the first of a two part series, and it really came out of, you know, and if folks listen back to earlier episodes, uh, you know, we we uh, talked for quite some time. Like it was sort of inevitable that, that, Democrats, that Democrats were going to take significant losses this November. And there were and continue to be good reasons why that might be the case. We'll talk about those next week. But the idea of this, this sort of... Uh, this two-part series is now that we're past Labor Day, we're in kind of the the the, the final stretch, really, of these midterm election campaigns. We thought it would be a good opportunity, rather than to make predictions at this point, to spend an episode each laying out the reasons for each party uh, to be hopeful heading into November, kind of their their best case scenario uh, or their best case argument for being optimistic in November. It would have been very hard to do this kind of series just a few months ago because uh, not not even many Democrats were willing were willing to make that that's right that case. And so so yeah, so that's the idea. Again, next week we'll uh, so this episode, we're not going to sort of be making counter arguments. Um, if you're listening to this episode and you're like, oh, this, seem, this seems overly rosy for Democrats. Uh, we think it is too. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what are the factors that sort of, um, what are the factors that are to the benefit of Democrats? And then next week, we'll talk about the, the various factors that are in favor of of Republicans doing well, M- Melissa. What do you think? Should we uh, let's let's uh, let's jump in? Sure, let's dive right in. First, Melissa, let's sort of set the stage. So we're, uh, as we've discussed before, there are all kinds of offices that will be 
decided mm-hmm. this November. Mm-hmm. Um, we're focusing in these two episodes on on Congress, That's on right. the House and the Senate, uh, because state environments are uh, are are different and can uh, need to be analyzed sort of uh, sort of differently. So we're talking about the balance of power in the House and the Senate. The current status quo is uh, 50 senators who caucus with the Democrats and 50 uh, Republicans in the Senate. So Democrats have control of the Senate currently by virtue of having the White House and specifically the vice presidency. Uh, well, um, but but it's it's uh, the Senate itself is, is evenly uh, evenly split. Democrats have a slim advantage in the House as as well, uh, and so that's the current sort of arrangement in the Senate. So uh, in, in in November, every House seat is up for for election. Uh, members of the House of Representatives are elected every two years. In the Senate, uh, about a, a third. Uh, of of uh, Senate seats are up for re-election every uh, two years because senators are elected to terms of uh, six years, and so so that's that's what we're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about the Senate. We're talking about the House. Democrats currently control uh, both by very slim margins. Uh, I think the the best place to start, Melissa, is. With the generic ballot. That's right. And so the generic ballot refers to, you know, uh, surveys that ask people just would you rather have, uh, would you rather have a Republican or a Democrat in Congress? So it doesn't name specific, uh, specific uh, individuals. It's a it's a national uh, it's a national poll. So it's not of a specific state or congressional district. But Democrats were behind by about three points. Yeah, that's right. Just in May, June. Mm -hmm. And we've seen really since since late July, Democrats start to climb to the point where now the average in these surveys has Democrats up about a point and a half. Mm-hmm. Now, for 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 context, because of how uh, sort of the the history of these polls, uh, there are some analysts who say, you know, for Democrats to do really well in a House election, they need to be doing better in the generic ballot uh, by three or four yes, points over Republicans. Something more significant. But it but this is still the market improvement uh, right. for Democrats. Has uh, is is one sign that they're they're building strength that they have momentum momentum heading, the chatter to November. Um, uh, so 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 that's 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 a that's a strong that's a strong sign that that nationally they have momentum at their side in September. We'll see how it develops in, into November, but the generic gala is looking much better for them uh, than it was for basically. Uh, Basically, the entire year. Yes, to, it's about January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about this more next week. But it's just important to 
note the, the history here, it's very difficult for the party that has the, the White House to gain seats in, uh, in these midterm elections. The history is sort of against them on that, mm -hmm. which is one of, the, one of the main reasons, along with some, some, some other reasons we'll cover next week. But but yeah, the generic ballot is a is it's a, looking is a more good positive place in the yeah. last month and a half. Yeah, that's right. And um, now, right, the question is like, what what is what are the reasons that the generic yes. ballot has, has gotten better? And Melissa, what what have you picked up on there? Well, based on timing, if we're talking about end of July with polling here on these generic ballots across a lot of them not just you know a single generic ballot like 538 we're talking about others like Rasmussen and all the major ones is the timing of Dobbs the Dobbs the Dobbs abortion decision um, seems to be a highly motivating factor if you look if you're looking just at the generic ballot and the timing of when we've been seeing sort of increases and um, things starting to go more towards Democrats in general um, and then we are seeing other reports, like there's some reporting on um, women, especially, and the trends there in generic women, men overall ballots. It's showing that women seem to be more motivated because of Dobbs and because of this abortion decision. And then there's some polling on young people and, the and how Dobbs is motivating young people. Um, and that particular one is coming out of Politico where young people are being motivated by Dobbs. Now, obviously, and again, I'm bringing up, we're just going to be bringing up a few caveats, just the ones that are like the most uh, apparent to us. We're again making the case for Democrats, but with when it comes to young people, young people, you know, even if they seem to be motivated, it remains to be seen when it comes to the actual election day, what kind of turnout there is because younger people tend to vote less. Um, so there's Dobbs. Um, and, you know, just speaking to generally, because of this generic ballot, because of this momentum, the media is talking about the momentum. And so there is a general feeling, I think, as well with, you know, Democrats are leading Republicans on who will definitely vote in midterms. There just seems to be more of a fervor, um, more of a likeliness to vote than Republicans right now with some polling. Um, we do have a, there is a poll out that's saying um, that even if you're unfavorable towards President Biden, you're still going to, that there's plenty of people who are still more more likely to vote Democrat, despite the fact that they might even be unfavorable towards President Biden. And I think that we're potentially seeing that this midterm election, if it were to go in the de into Democrats' favor, that th this election is more about issues than it will be about a referendum on President Biden himself. And I think that that's a key distinction here. And not often, and especially in the years where, and please disagree with me, Michael, in the few times, maybe a couple times really, in the past several, several decades of why an electorate would choose the, you know, the current um, party that's in power in the White House is sort of in spite of that power. It's more towards issues or something that's going on currently in, yeah, in, sure. in that societally or in politics. And that might be what we might end up seeing and uh, why in the end we might buck historical trends. Yeah. I mean, so you, you brought up quite a bit on Dobbs, you know, I've, I've been, uh, 
convinced that it's not just media and sort of advocacy group puffery mm. uh, that is suggesting that Dobbs will motivate people to turn out for, for Democrats and to vote Democratic. I, I, I've been convinced by by some of the some of the numbers we're we're seeing by how some of these special elections have gone, and so I do think that's a real factor, and it could be a deciding factor if we're making the case for Democrats on this episode, which we are. Uh, I think if if Democrats uh, do well in November, uh, a a it is likely it will be because well on the history of abortion, typically conservatives have been uh, the ones who have ranked the issue more highly in terms of their priorities mm-hmm. when voting. And they, and conservatives have been more motivated to turn out because of the issue. If that flips, which there's good reason to, uh, we've had Roe for 50 years, and this is the first national election where we uh, were... Uh, a post row, and mm-hmm. so uh, I wrote on the Substack this week about something yeah. I call the aggressor principle. Right, and uh, you could check that out at reclaiminghope.substack.com. But the aggressor principle here uh, is in Democrats' favor, especially now, given the fact that Republicans haven't seemed too willing to to push back and, and make make their case for why getting rid of Roe was a good thing they, they've been pretty muted on on the subject and have allowed democrats to really control the narrative about about uh, the impact of of the dobbs decision uh, and the falling of roe so that has to be uh, a, a a top of the line reason to think that democrats have a uh, have a real chance at having a successful a successful november i also want to pick up on Another thing you mentioned, which is, uh, so it traditionally has been a really good way to to um, sort of figure out how the midterms are going to go by looking at the approval rating mm-hmm. of right. yes. the incumbent president. There are signs that that, sort of way of that predictive method has lost power Mm -hmm. because of polarization. Yeah. I'd also add sort of to that, I think internal party dynamics for the Democratic Party have made that less likely. Mm. So part of by, you know, the vast number of Americans who disapprove of President Biden are doing so from the right. Um, but uh, but there are, uh, given sort of the tension within the Democratic Party, given some of the critiques of Biden, I think his, those disapprove of Biden, it's like a bit more of a, a broader spread. <laughs> like there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a wider spread of reasons for that. And so uh, Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report this week was expressing, and Amy Walter is one of the experts uh, of uh, of of looking at midterm elections, the history of midterm elections, uh, 
uh, assessing uh, how the parties are going to fare. And she said that she's never seen such a high percentage of voters who think unfavorably about Biden voting to keep his party in office. That's a very promising sign. Yes. You know, like if if one of the major underpinnings of the reason why it's hard to, uh, of the historical trend yep. of the party in power losing seats, if one of the major underpinnings from that is no longer valid if because of polarization, yep. um, then, then, you know, that's a really good reason to think, you know, not only is the historical trend going to be bucked, uh, in this instance, but that we may need to think about midterm elections differently mm-hmm. moving moving forward. So I think that's that's uh, that's really interesting. Now, just to add to that, we have seen President Biden's approval rating move up. Yeah, it started to tick up. And so again, in that same post where I talked about the aggressor principle, I mentioned at the very end, I wrote I wrote. Uh, I, I wrote some supplementary analysis to last week's episode about Biden's Philly speech. And I mentioned at the end of that, uh, of the Substack essay that, uh, you know, one way to view the speech uh, that Biden gave in Philly was as a sort of concession that his approval rating isn't going to reach 50, that he still had enough strength to dictate the course of the conversation. Right. And I think the way his approval rating is going, I I think that just about matches. So we've seen President Biden's approval rating get up to the 45% uh, uh, territory, which is, you know, not fantastic. Any president is going to want to be at 50 or above. But in this time of polarization, it's actually a, a fairly strong... Yes fairly strong position for him to be in and it it means that the headwinds against his party if that number holds mm-hmm. won't be quite as strong and then just you know I'd add to that I think uh, people often will underestimate how an incumbent president is going to do and how uh, their party is going to do too early in their term because in the early stages of their term they're working primarily to get stuff done uh and it's messy and they're putting out a ton of decisions and uh, to varying degrees they're not focused on making their case to the american people and we have seen that and we you and i have complained about that a little bit but I think we've seen a much more visible advocacy-oriented White House. That was going to be one of the next things I was going to say. Yeah, because please. What pick you're it talking up. about at the end of the Philly speech about the White House having found, it seems, messaging and narratives that seem to be working for a lot of the electorate, whereby they're making their case better and it's being understood. Um, so that the White House has been pointing to it, especially for the last two months, all of the administration's efforts and victories. So not just the victories, but also the efforts. And so that's why I say, you know, some people might be able to vote 
for Democrats in spite of whatever they feel about President Biden because the White House has been laying out much better than they have since, you know, January, uh, you know, when the president first came in and started getting things done in the first 100 days. They've been they've been messaging it, packaging it so much better than they have been. And one of the things like the key thing that I've been noticing is just straight up confidence that what they've yeah. done is good, what they've done has been helpful to the American people, what they've done has improved the economy, has improved American lives. Um, and they seem like they're just the way that they're crafting their messaging is much more offensive than defensive. There's just been slight semantic rhetorical language changes. Completely agree. That are that communicate forward footing rather than backward footing. Um, or defensive footing. And I feel like that has made a huge difference, not just in how the media covers the presidency and the, the administration and the Democrats in general, but that the average American, when they're hearing these messages or these arguments, it's just communicating in a much smoother, cleaner, clarifying way. Um, now, whether or not people are convinced by it, obviously, is another thing. But at least people are given being given the chance to understand exactly what the president has achieved, I, I would say. Yeah. Um, and especially because, you know, we've been hearing, you know, there have been leaks, you know, from the administration itself that they've been so frustrated that they haven't been given credit where credit is due on, you know, you know, like the infrastructure bill, for example, and how hard it was to even get to that point. And the fact that infrastructure bills are actually really notoriously hard to pass. Getting anything done in infrastructure has been historically hard to pass. It's kind of like, come on now, you know, um, you know, just right there. With, if we're thinking about a specific example, um, I think that that's big in terms of, again, that feeling of momentum, that feeling of you know, maybe we might buck historical trends. Let's kind of go on a more forward footing. Yeah, yeah. Here, there was a, a survey that came out um, this past week that David Leonhardt uh, highlighted that really was the reason uh, I specifically said we should do this episode. Yes. And that is a David Leonhardt uh, and we'll we'll include this in the show notes. Uh, there was a New York Times morning consult poll, and this this really is the first number I've seen that really shocked me. So I haven't mm-hmm. been I haven't been surprised to see uh, Democrats gain strength with women mm-hmm. or young voters in yep. response to Dobbs. Yep. You know, maybe to see some one poll showed a 20 point swing among his Hispanic women yeah. towards Democrats Th- that is a notable notable number if if Democrats perform much better with Hispanic voters than they did in 2020 that's mm-hmm. promising yeah. but this is the number that really surprised me uh, which party has handled covid better overall 45% say Democrats compared to 32% of Republicans. I was blown away by that. Yeah, I thought for sure the feeling towards Democrats that they're the party of school shutdowns, they're the party of masks, the party of vaccines, whatever you want to call it, all the polarization around COVID, um, that really started to happen a bit more into President Biden's um, 
administration because as COVID went on, you know, uh, well, the yeah, polarization I mean, around this issue started right. to rise. And, you know, with merit and a lot, a lot, a lot of the time in, well, in certain and, ways. And, and, and Biden has been, you know, president now for a year and a half. Yep. And it just, you, you kind of, um, you kind of own the own the issue when mm-hmm. you've been president for yep. that that long, uh, typically. Uh, but I, I I so right like one of one of two things either the American people or it could be a combination of both either the American people rem- remember and still hold against mm-hmm. Republicans. How they handled the the initial stages of COVID, particularly President Trump, or they've taken a look and based on their sort of honest assessment, they might say, you know, yes, mistakes were made, but like we we remember what a complicated, frightening, unprecedented sort of situation it was, and sort of given that, we think Democrats have done. You know, they they, they, they favor that Democrats yeah. have done a, a better job. And so for me, you know, I thought coming into this midterm election that COVID was going to be one of the bigger strengths that Republicans were going to have. And not even, again, not even, yes, you can make substantive arguments why that should be the case. But I also just thought... You know, Democrats kind of own this now by virtue of being in mm-hmm. power, and and like yep. that alone will work against them. Yeah. And uh, you know, if if COVID actually gives Democrats, if Democrats haven't just neutralized, if Democrats um, aren't just not harmed by COVID in yeah. November, but if voters actually reward them yes. for how they handled COVID, um. That's a game changer for me. So this is the first number I saw where I was like, wow, maybe the electorate really is in a in a different mood. I want to ask you something. This might be something that's a bit too adjacent, but in the apps we're in we're in midterms, we're not I'm, we're not talking about a general election or like a presidential election. Um sorry, misspoke there. We're not talking about general election for a presidency. We're talking about a general election for a midterm. For 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 yeah, Congress sure. here, um, right now we're in we're in an interesting period of American history where we don't really have. I, I mean, there are. I I mean, I'm a foreign policy person, so I can make all kind of arguments here. But I'm talking about a broad general feeling, or general issue that Americans would care about towards like national security. We really don't have one right now because we're we're not really in a war footing. Yes, we're supporting Ukraine. We continue to put you know, President Biden continues to request money from Congress for that. But we ourselves we, we're pulled out of Afghanistan. Um there's no other major war that we're trying to get ourselves into. Domestic, you know, domestic <laughs> terrorism is obviously a concern for a lot of people. Clearly we had the democracy speech last week, but um foreign terrorism isn't an, an issue. That when it comes to like the security mom type voter, mm. it makes me think of this number right here mm. on the handling of COVID. Oh, that's super interesting. Because when we talk about COVID, I think it implicates more so children and schooling and education. Yeah. Um, but more so than any other issue when it comes to, edu- I mean, generally education. And we know that the economy and all sort of things, but all stemming from COVID really, like with, te- you know, worries of teacher shortages and all stuff like that. If the security moms feel like Democrats 
are generally have handled COVID better, that in a time when we're sort of have a vacuum of something national security to be voting on, that this sort of fills the vacuum. What do you think of that kind of thesis? Oh, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, obviously there are arguments, you know, it may cut both ways, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to like see, I'd love to see, you know, write-ups on that. And, and, you know, maybe you're the person to do the write-up. But no, yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about the the ways that that, that sort of uh, constituency that was Can so we, significant. I'm actually just realizing I'm using a term here that not everybody might know. Can you explain what a security mom is? Yeah, so security mom, that was a, um, well, so yeah, so... Um, during the Bush years, uh, which Bush? Uh, George W. Bush. Yes. Carl <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Rove made popular this idea of micro targeting, and there were a number of various sort of very sort of specific kind of voter profiles that gained prominence but probably the most significant and this was i may be uh i'm pretty sure my recollection is right here this was the security mom was really a feature in, in 2004 yeah yeah um, yeah I'd, I'd say that's right uh and and it, it was a it was a reference to the idea that moms with particular concerns over the basic safety of their families particularly in light of terrorism yep uh, were voting for Bush in yes. 2004. Right. That that they had uh, that uh, and, and right sort of part of the idea here was uh, uh, female voters weren't traditionally associated with uh, prioritizing foreign policy high in their in their sort of voting priorities. Mm-hmm. They were typically um, appealed to. On the basis of healthcare, on the basis of education, right? Uh, but but this was sort of the Bush political operation saying, no, we can go after women and particularly mothers on this issue of national security, and mm-hmm. so 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 that's the that's the sort of that's the context. That here. is what I mean by security, mom. And so I'm thinking when there's a vacuum of a national security concern in when we're coming into a general election, I wonder if this issue of COVID fills it in. And if we're seeing such a positive, well, it's not like hugely positive, but a surprisingly positive for you and I, for Democrats, I'm wondering, hmm, might that fill the void for that type of voter? Right. And I mean, to your, to your point, if, if that's the case, it wouldn't just be, and we're, we're sort of like, Melissa, we didn't talk about this no, idea <laughs> prior to, and this is like, this could be a whole episode. Um, if if this is a thing so for instance if we see in november this is such an interesting thing to look at and we'll make sure to have special attention to this both in the run-up to the election but as we do our post-election coverage we'll sort of revisit this if we see democrats with a market improvement among moms yes we can look at covid but right will look differently, I think, on the importance of 
a de- Democrats focus on guns mm-hmm. will look differently. I mean, you could even say that they're making a case. Democrats have made a case around uh, climate change mm-hmm. and this sort of protect your kids future mm-hmm. sort of sort of thing. And so. So yeah, no, I love this. I love this idea. This 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 is like the headline out of this episode. You know, are Democrats cultivating sort of uh, the, the the next the next generation of security and, moms as a as a and as you a can see demographic, it, and yeah. you can see it a bit already. Because one, one of the other reasons why I mentioned this is that you can see it already with how they, they've messaged the Dobbs decision. And how they're speaking specifically to people who already are moms when we're talking about that particular issue and the messaging around like, remember how, you know, like how hard pregnancy is and how can you ask somebody to go through that if they don't want to kind of thing. I've seen so many arguments around that, that I could see them even, you know, using all kinds of issues. And that one, if it, that's already, we're already talking about that being such a motivating issue in the first place that I could absolutely see Democrats testing all of this out with this election coming up in November and then cultivating, especially for 2024, this particular type of voter, especially in the absence of traditional national security issue, making securitizing a lot of other issues, Yeah, um, which we see all the time, the securitization of a lot of different issues. Now, right. So, uh, you know, Republicans are pushing back on this by talking about crime, uh-huh. by talking about sort of parents' involvement in education, uh-huh. so so this is a, a a battle. But I think the the case you're laying out here is uh, d- Democrats. This isn't 2004 anymore. Democrats seem to have created a number of ways to uh, to appeal to this constituency. So I think mm-hmm. I think that's super interesting. The last thing I want to cover, uh, sort of, as we think about Democrats. Why Democrats might be successful in November is this issue of candidates, and particularly mm-hmm. this is particularly salient when we talk about the Senate. Yes, which is look there. There are you know over thirty Senate seats up for reelection, but less than a dozen are expected to be competitive, mm-hmm. and uh, you look at those dozen and Republicans at least in three of those seats seem to have and and really you could make an argument for more than that seem to have some pretty profoundly flawed candidates in those races so I'm thinking I'm thinking of Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania I'm thinking of Herschel Walker yes in Georgia You know, Blake Masters in Arizona, Arizona. that people were uh, uh, impressed by uh, or maybe just sort of surprised by some of his ads and thought, oh, this guy's doing something interesting. It's it's seeming to potentially fall flat. Now, again, I just want to remind folks next week we'll make all we'll make all kinds of arguments for why, uh, you know, these candidates might overperform and we'll make arguments about some of the Democratic candidates. Uh, but it seems uh, we, we've we talked recently about Republicans pulling out 
money from supporting a candidate like Blake Masters. Yeah, pulling a lot of ad money. Pulling a lot of ad money. And so it seems like in some of these key states that if you just looked at, you know, Republican registration in the state, how Republicans have performed in the past, where they should be on a really strong footing uh, that uh, that they're not. And candidate recruitment seems to have had a, you know a lot to a lot to do with that. And I mean, another way to look at this is, um, you know, I think Stacey Abrams is a stronger and more effective candidate than Raphael Warnock. Mm-hmm. But Stacey Abrams is running against Brian Kemp. Yes. And, uh, and you know, Warnock's running against, uh, running against Herschel Walker. Yes. Now, of course, you know, uh, Kemp's an incumbent, all, all that. I, I think the main point is, you, you know, Republicans could have recruited a candidate that has real political history and networks across the state. Herschel Walker doesn't, doesn't doesn't have that and i think we're seeing that show show up and how his campaign uh is functioning and so so that's an that's the the candidate recruitment piece is uh the failures on the republican side i think we could also add you know we'll see in november if sort of the democrats emphasis on what they're now calling maga republicans but Mm -hmm sort of democratic efforts to which you know we're not supportive of but it's just the reality you know to what extent will you know these right-wing candidates who won primaries prove to be weak in general elections yep. now that's something that's going to be much more live on the uh, that is going to be live both on the senate side and the house side right. um so so yeah so i think i think um if if Democrats perform well, you know Republicans could be looking back and saying, "Gosh, we really botched this opportunity to uh, to 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 win back that the House and or the Senate." Uh, and the candidates were a big reason why. I just want to mention one last obvious piece of evidence out there too towards this point of um, the quality of candidates is that Senator Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Um, has even cited candidate quality as an issue that he is thinking that um, the House may flip, but the Senate may not because of this candidate quality issue. Yeah. No, super interesting. There are obviously other reasons, and I'm sure we'll be surprised, you know, if Democrats do well, there will be surprises sort of about, you know, why they did well. I mean, we haven't talked that much about the fact that, you know, maybe by the time we get to November, some of the things like, you know, an easing of inflation, falling gas prices, yeah. you know, those things the will economy. begin. The, the economy generally, yes. What will uh, uh, sort of these improvements will add up to a, uh, an electorate that just feels much better about the direction than they even currently do now. Yes. So, you know, that's that's uh, going to be, if, if Democrats are successful, the fact that the economy is in a different position now than it was uh, 
in the first quarter of this year. Like that'll be a big reason. Like when elections are held matter, you know, quite quite a bit. Um, we'd love to hear from you whether you're uh, whether you plan to vote for uh, a Democrats or any Democrat this November or not. If if you had to say, you know. Uh, what would be your top reasons why you think Democrats would be successful this November? We'll, again, ask you about Republicans next week, but we'd, we'd love to hear from you. You could reach out to us over Twitter, Instagram, uh, 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 check in on the Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, this episode is not a, a prediction episode. We're not saying Democrats are going to keep the House and the Senate. Here's what I will say, though, Melissa. <laughs> okay. Which is, if if um, if a majority of voters approve of Democrats' um, handling of COVID in the in among the midterm election electorate, I don't think they lose the House and the Senate. Hmm. Okay. Um, here's another thing that we haven't talked about, which is, you know, I think another reason why we're seeing an improvement among Democrats in the generic ballot is because Donald Trump has been in the news. <laughs> yes. And so if Donald Trump continues to insert himself into this midterm election campaign, he's been doing rallies for candidates, um, you know, that could play a significant role. The, the, the general thought here is, is Republicans would very much like for this to be a referendum on Democrats. Yep. They think that they think if the focus is on Democrats, uh, they'll they'll do a better job. Well, it's really hard for that to be the case if Donald Trump, who still has very low approval ratings in this country, is reminding uh, the American electorate that he's still sort of the the top Republican. When when anyone thinks of Republicans, they think of Donald Trump. Still, that that's one of the ways I think the Republican Party has been harmed by not having at least the House or the Senate. Mm -hmm. If they had the House, they'd have a speaker. They'd have a new face of the Republican Party. But because they're they're not in the White House, they don't have control of the House or Senate, Donald Trump is still the de facto leader of the Republican Party in many ways. And so that's another factor why Democrats might do well this November because, because Donald Trump is still very much... In the news, uh, uh, a future presidential campaign is very much on the table. Uh, Republican candidates are constantly asked about Donald Trump. And so that helps break up some of the, you know, previously. So in in, in 2010, mm -hmm. George W. Bush wasn't in the news, you yep. know, in 2000, uh, in 1994, George H. W. Bush wasn't what yeah. uh, was it? That's right. Uh, kick it up a whole whole storm. These were elections that could where the opposing party could really focus on the president in the White House. Yeah. But but it's just a different 
different scenario the, this time around. And so for all those reasons uh, and the reasons that you think, listener, um, Democrats might have a real shot at keeping both the House and the Senate this November and how things play out over the next uh, two months, now less than two months, uh, will we'll determine, uh, play a significant role in determining uh, that. Uh, Melissa, any, any final words uh, uh, before, we, before, we, uh, before we end this episode? I guess my only final word is anything that we're basing off of polling... I've become, I've become, oh, that's, yes, yes, yes. I, and this is going to be my major caveat, which will set us up perfectly for next week of why Republicans would win. Yes, yes, yes. Polling, especially in the last, especially since 2016, um, when polling was so incredibly wrong when it came to um, how much momentum and power President Trump held before we actually actually had the election. And I know the Electoral College came into play and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and all that. But still, the polling was quite off. And since well, that time, um, yes. polling has proven that it is n- still not gotten a handle on polarization and the American electorate. So anytime we're citing polling in this entire episode, I'm sitting back going, well, it's been very wrong. <laughs> Well, right, and that's one of the you know we're we're not doing the counter arguments. Against, I know, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if we were going to do the counter arguments, and just as you said, a preview of next week, I think one of the key things you could say for Republicans is, uh, yeah, the polling isn't as good as you'd like, but if you look at the polls of Senate races uh, in twenty twenty. Um, there was actually someone who just put out an analysis of this. Uh, Republicans were uh, the Republican candidate in like a dozen key races were was significantly uh, significantly underperformed their actual performance in the polls, uh, including you know in Maine polling was off by double digits. Oh yes, I remember that. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to be a foregone conclusion that Susan Collins was going to lose that race. The polling was right. clear. She ends up winning. But there were other races where uh, the Republican outperformed what they were polling as significantly. And so, uh, so, so yeah, so so that is the... Uh, I'm uh, sorry, I broke no, our rule. No, yeah, you broke, you broke our rule. I broke the, the cardinal rule of our... Of, of part one of the yeah, podcast. But so so the argument for Democrats is maybe the pollsters got their act together. You know? Yeah. That's, yeah. Here we go. Um, hey, Nate it's, Silver will rise again. Yeah. <laughs> out of like, the, out of like the ashes. Phoenix. Like a phoenix. <laughs> uh, oh, no, not on fire because that's when they're actually... Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it... Uh, it's been so good being with you. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode. You can listen to The Morning Five Monday through Thursday. And we'll be back for part two of this series where we'll talk about the reasons Republicans have to be optimistic about November's elections. Uh, until then, this has been Where We Are. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.